The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Any clinician that has dealt with a gout attack may notice that you aspirate a gouty joint is full of neutrophils as opposed to other arthritis which have mostly lymphocytes sometimes. So the inflammation tends to have a different cellular pattern, but gout inflammation is highly inflammatory, is highly neutrophilic. I would have been much more cautious about mentioning that canakinumab may be able to prevent gout or to treat gout rather than using a serum urate lowering agent. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. The current Annals on Call focuses on an article titled Relationship of Interleukin-1 Beta Blockade with Incident Gout and Serum Uric Acid Levels, Exploratory Analysis of a Randomized Controlled Trial. This article appeared in the October 16th issue of the Annals in 2018. Our guest for this article is Dr. Angelo Goffo, who's one of my colleagues at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's currently an associate professor of rheumatology and the chief of rheumatology at Birmingham VA Hospital. His interest in research and clinical is gout and hyperuricemia. We're delighted to have Dr. Goffo on this podcast We chose this article because it says a lot about the pathophysiology of acute gouty attacks and hopefully will help both you and me better understand the process of acute gouty attacks. Angelo, thank you very much for joining me today to discuss this most interesting article. I think in order to put this article into perspective, perhaps you could explain to us as much as you can about the pathophysiology of gout and gouty attacks. Bob, thanks a lot for the invitation. Always very happy to talk about gout. So gout is this very painful inflammatory arthritis, which is deeply associated with increased concentrations of uric acid. We in rheumatology have made a case now to call it serum urate. It's a better term. So serum urate is elevated, and this essentially defines the state of hyperuricemia, which is necessary but not the only factor related to the later occurrence of gout, which manifests itself as painful attacks of arthritis. And many of the doctors and other providers in the audience may have noticed that tends to occur in lower extremities, uh, first NTP joints, ankles, knees, but other areas can be involved. But also is defined by increased burden or concentrations of these monosodium urate crystals 
in that deposit in tissues and this can manifest itself as joint damage or these tophi that are basically subcutaneous palpable or sometimes visible accumulations of monosodium urate with some connective tissue around it and can be felt in the elbows or over the MCPs or PIPs in the hands or over the knees. So uh, these are the two main manifestations of gout. Other implications of gout are, of course, you know, this association with a highly uh, chronic inflammatory state that can lead to cardiovascular complications. And also, in some cases, urolithiasis and kidney stones can also develop in patients with gout. Okay, so we have uric acid, we have elevated uric acid that can lead either to acute arthritis and or tophine destruction of joints, also can lead to kidney stones, but also that whole inflammatory process is at least correlated with cardiovascular events. When you have a high urate, what is it that causes the inflammatory response? So this is quite interesting. The way we came to understand this in the past decade or so, really urate is present normally physiologically at relatively low concentrations and you know probably normal serum urate levels in, in individuals that do not have gout or any other significant illness are somewhere between four and five. So when serum urate starts increasing in concentration, it starts crystallizing and, and these crystals induce inflammation through the activity of the innate immune system and our immune system virtually have two major branches the adaptative immune system is the one that probably most of the audience is familiar with includes T cells B cells at response which is delayed at least by a few hours to a few days generation of autoantibodies or modification of T cell receptors and that's how we mount immunity against many infections and viruses and cancer cells or similar. But the other branch of the immune system is the innate immune system, which is primordial. It's really preserved from species down to species and to us humans, and is designed to respond in a matter of minutes, and it senses danger signals. So danger signals, for example, lipopolysaccharides or some flagelli from bacteria and it mounts a very fast response as you can imagine sometimes we cannot wait for many many hours or days to mount an immune response otherwise we will suffer the consequences of it uric acid and monosodium urate the crystallized form seems to induce the activation of this innate primordial mechanism and looks like these monosodium uric crystals interact with the lipid layer in the cells where they deposit usually macrophages. And after that, downstream a molecular mechanism called the inflammasome gets activated. And the subset of the inflammasome that seems to be most active in gout is called NLRP3. And this molecular complex leads to the activation of IL-1 beta. And IL-1 beta is present as a pro-molecule, is pro-IL-1 beta, and the inflammasome leads to the cleavage of pro-IL-1 beta in its active form, IL-1 beta. And so large amounts of IL-1 beta are released into the circulation, and the inflammation of gout is very driven by this molecule. 
and IL-1 leads to the recruitment of neutrophils very rapidly, and any clinician that has dealt with a gout attack may notice that you aspirate a gouty joint is full of neutrophils as opposed to other arthritis which have mostly lymphocytes sometimes, so the inflammation tends to have a different cellular pattern, but gout inflammation is highly inflammatory, is highly neutrophilic, and that is driven in part by this process that is driven largely by IL-1 beta. And this inflammatory mechanism or through activation of the inflammasome and generation of IL-1 beta is not unique to gout. Other conditions such as pseudogout and even some diseases like Stills disease or other auto-inflammatory diseases are also driven by this mechanism and tend to share this characteristic of a highly neutrophilic inflammatory state. So IL-1 beta is interleukin-1 beta. So if I get this right, because I'm not real good on this type of physiology, the inflammasome is stimulated by the gouty crystals or the pseudogout crystals, etc. When it gets angry, it then gets the interleukin-1 beta activated, and that's where all the inflammation and therefore the pain and the swelling and the redness comes from. Yes, that's correct. And you may notice that gout attacks are intensely inflammatory locally and systemically, and that is driven in part by all the neutrophilic recruitment that comes after IL-1 beta stimulation. So here's the big thing going on in this study, I believe. We have a monoclonal antibody, canakinumab, Mm -hmm. and it's going to work on interleukin-1 beta. So I have a hard time with these mononuclear antibodies, and my guess is many of the listeners do too. Tell us about this one, and then we'll go to the study, which was not originally about gout. It's originally about coronary artery disease. We can discuss the study and then how they did a secondary analysis about gout. So tenacimumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody that targets, so basically binds IL-1-beta and prevents its action or its receptor. So it's basically a molecule that blocks IL-1-beta, and it exerts its effect through not allowing IL-1-beta to generate its systemic response. So this study was the original study, the CANTOS study. It was basically a cardiovascular prevention study, and it was following the hypothesis that highly inflammatory states basically predisposed to worsening cardiovascular outcomes. And the parent study, again, enrolled high-risk coronary artery disease patients and put them in different doses of canakimumab to prevent further cardiovascular events. And also, they had another outcome in lung cancer mortality, which was also a positive one, which is quite provocative. But this was not a gout study. This was a cardiovascular prevention study, and it was a positive study in many ways. So canakimumab led to a decrease in the incidence of new cardiovascular events in these high-risk patients. So canakinumab is going to slow down that inflammatory process, and if I remember this right, coronary artery disease is really an inflammatory disease. To get into this study, you had to have an elevated CRP. That's correct, yes. And is the CRP an indicator of this inflammatory pathway being agitated? That's correct. So this inflammatory pathway notably increases CRP. CRP usually correlates very well with levels of interleukin-6 elevation. Both of these are associated also with elevations in IL-1-beta. Okay, so in order to get in this study, you had to be a high inflammatory person anyway. 
Yes. And so we can talk about that. But the current study was just analysis of people. And if I remember right, they divide them into urates of less than six, urates of six, is it like six to eight? Yes, yes. And then urates of greater than eight, some of whom had had gout before and some of them who had not had gout before. And then afterwards, they found out whether or not they'd had gouty attacks. Could you talk a little bit about that and about, uh, as I remember, their definition of gout was the patient said they had a gouty attack. Yes, and all this is quite important. Your initial description is all correct. They basically analyzed the participants in the parent study, and they basically stratified the population based on these concentrations of serum urate. Of course, the higher your serum urate, the higher your risk of having incident gout, or if you already have gout, to have recurring gout attacks. So that was very appropriate what they did. Assuming that the participants with serum urates of more than eight were much, it's unfair to compare someone with a serum urate of more than eight that someone with a serum urate of less than six. Of course, there's going to be a difference in the outcome. So that stratification was very appropriate. Now, they just followed the participants regardless of the fact of whether they said they had gout before. And again, the study was not about gout primarily, so their gout assessments were relatively superficial. And they asked the participants whether they were diagnosed with gout before. And they defended this based on a prior study that about seven years ago basically looked at the accuracy of you having gout if you say you had gout. (laughs) And that study found that the accuracy of that self-judgment is relatively good. That's really nice to know. That's really nice to know. Those of us who like to take histories, it's nice to know that patients are pretty accurate. Yes. This prior study supported that patients telling you that they have gout is a relatively good indicator. Now, that was a single study that has not been replicated. So you could question that source and you can say, well, could there be some inaccuracy in what these patients say about a prior gout diagnosis? That is possible. Now, they then follow these participants for the issue of either incident gout if you didn't have gout before or recurrent gout flares or attacks if you already said you had gout. Now, here the situation is much more murky, in my opinion, because these ascertainments were done at the pre-specified follow-ups. So, for example, you come for your six months follow-up and they ask you, have you had a gout attack since the prior visit? And you say yes or no. And recollection of gout attacks or gout flares can be quite hard. This is a different issue of saying if you have been diagnosed with gout before. So we ourselves have worked on the topic of gout flares with some extent, and patients can be very accurate about the presence or not of a gout flare if you catch them at the moment of the event. But if you are questioning back a month prior or two months prior whether you had a gout flare or not, nobody knows the answer to that. And my personal judgment based on my experience as a rheumatologist is that the accuracy of that statement probably comes down a lot. So I am not so sure that you can defend a lot the fact that they didn't have a real-time follow-up on these gout flares or incident gout events on follow-up. That might be a limitation of the study. They mentioned in the discussion that this problem is non-differential, so that it happened in the people that got placebo and it happened 
happen in the people that got Kanakimu map. And that's true. So I don't see a reason to doubt that. But Kanakimu map is also broadly active anti-inflammatory drug. So uh, what I mean by that is that it may suppress the inflammation of gout, it may suppress the inflammation of other inflammatory arthritic conditions. So, for example, it's another IL-1 beta drug, Anakinra. It's, it's FDA approved for rheumatoid arthritis. So you can treat actually rheumatoid arthritis with Anakinra. We don't do it very often because it's a daily injection. But Kanakimumab theoretically could also suppress the inflammation of osteoarthritis with inflammation of RA or some other inflammatory arthritis different than gout. So the people that were on placebo were at a disadvantage probably because they were reporting more acute or painful arthritic events that were identified as gout in this study, as opposed to the of arm where these individuals probably, uh, there was a broad anti-inflammatory effect that could have suppressed gout, but it could have suppressed also other arthritic conditions. So what you're saying is that their recollection of having inflammatory arthritis that may or may not have been gout, probably was gout, but we're not sure, is decreased just because you're blocking interleukin-1-beta, and that would be a common pathway of inflammatory arthritis. Yes, yes, it's possible that they were broadly blocking inflammatory arthritis. Let's assume that more studies are done and this is replicated. What are the implications of the idea that blocking interleukin-1 is going to decrease gouty attacks independent of the serum urate? Well, let me just mention, there is something in the discussion that I think the authors, uh, they didn't do all their homework because they say in the discussion, kanakimumab has been tested for acute gout flares, which is true but we are the first ones to report that it's effective preventing gout attacks. And that is not accurate. There was a study in arthritis and rheumatism that was published in 2012 in which that looks quite similar to this report that in which they actually look at map for prevention of gout flares and it was found to be highly effective. I could send you the reference also for the listeners of the podcast later. So your question of the implication of this finding that yes, we could prevent gout attacks or flares by using an agent which blocks IL-1 beta in addition or in place of serum urate lowering therapy it's a controversial statement, I would say, Bob. We know that hyperuricemia defines gout, and we know that the position of monosodium urate crystals in joints and tissues is a necessary factor to develop gout. We know very well that to fix the problem of gout, to resolve the pathophysiological problem leading to gout, you need to lower serum urate. The role of anti-inflammatory therapies, and I'm not talking only about canakimumab here, I'm talking about NSAIDs, colchicine, even glucocorticoids, and of course this IL-1 beta antagonist agents, is basically in two major scenarios. One is the management of gout flares or gout attacks, and the second one is in the prophylaxis of gout flares 
that usually that occurs shortly after you start urine lowering therapies. And the first scenario, management of gout flares is a different topic, but basically we all know how effective these agents can be. And the second topic is when you start urine lowering therapies, you start removing these urine deposits from the joint. This in itself can elicit gout flares and you need to have an agent and that accompanies the initiation of urine lowering therapy to prevent those new gout flares. This is very well described in the American College of Rheumatology guidelines and it's good practice in general to start treating a gout patient. Now, the idea that you can use an anti-inflammatory therapy instead of a urate lowering therapy to treat a patient with chronic gout which is something that the authors mention a number of times in their discussion, I think it's a mistaken concept. And I say this because monosodium urate deposits are still gonna be there. You are not gonna get rid of those. So the anti-inflammatory therapy can, of course, prevent the flares. It can reduce pain. But for example, tophaceous deposits are not gonna get better with anti-inflammatory therapy. And joint damage is not gonna get better with anti-inflammatory therapy. And in general, the underlying pathophysiological process leading to the condition to gout is not being resolved. Again, those monosodium urine deposits are there. So I think that's a missed opportunity in the discussion of this paper that wasn't addressed that I would have been much more cautious about mentioning that canakinumab may be able to prevent gout or to treat gout rather than using a serum urate lowering agent. And I know we've had this conversation before on the very first podcast in the series. We talked about the difference between the American College of Rheumatology and American College Physicians guidelines for lowering uric acid. So I'm giving you a chance to do a bit of a rebuttal towards the American College Physicians guideline that says give allopurinol. They keep on having attacks, give more allopurinol. They keep on having attacks, give more allopurinol, but not measure the urate. And I know that you're in favor of measuring the urate and trying to get the urate down at goal. Why don't you make the argument for that? Yes, thank you for giving me that chance. Is Certainly the rheumatology community has had a lot of experience with a treat-to-target approach in which we aim for a serum urate of 6 in patients who do not have TOFI or significant joint damage or a serum urate of 5 in patients with TOFI or significant joint damage. So the American College of Physicians approach that is treat to avoid symptoms, basically as you describe, just start them on a low dose of allopurinol and just monitor symptoms. If symptoms do not recur, you can stop there. It's predicated on the lack of evidence for the American College of Rheumatology and European Society approach of treat to target. I think that the American College of Physicians ignored the significant experience that the rheumatology community has with the treat to target approach and also ignored the evidence of the, for example, the studies with peglodicase. Peglodicase is this uricase inhibitor which we use in cases of severe gout gout with a lot of TOFI, with a very hard to treat gout, and in which we clearly demonstrated, or better said, the study authors and the sponsors clearly demonstrated that lowering serum urate to levels below 5, and in many cases below 4 and less than that, led to profound reductions in gout flares, size of TOFI, and quality of life indicators. It's true that the amount of data 
that we have on the treat to target approach is limited. So it's limited to relatively small studies, to these peglodic case studies, and that a head-to-head trial on treat to target versus treat to avoid symptoms has not been properly done or has not been done at all. And let me tell you, the rheumatology community is working right now on designing these trials because we really believe that our approach is the correct one. But the experience of the treat to target approach is significant. And I think that the American College of Physicians has also made the mistake of considering serum urate to be a surrogate of gout. And it's different. Serum urate for gout is different than blood sugar for diabetes or different than, I don't know, probably the blood pressure number for cardiovascular events. And I know you, the internal medicine community, has had many blunders with surrogate markers, you know, in lowering blood sugar too much or lowering blood pressure too much. But serum urate is not a surrogate marker. It's an intrinsic pathophysiological process in the disease. So I would make a better parallel between insulin and diabetes and serum urate and gout. So we all know how that insulin is not a surrogate. Insulin is part of the pathophysiology of diabetes. Serum urate is part of the pathophysiology of gout. So I think it's mistaken to say that we are wrong by advocating a reduction in serum urate to a target by saying that serum urate is just a surrogate. We are generating the evidence more and more strongly, I hope, that reductions to a target of serum urate are the best way to treat gout. Well, Angela, thank you very much for your enthusiastic discussion of this last question, which I'll let the audience know Angela and I discussed in the hallway the other day. I think you did a great job of helping us understand the pathophysiology of gout, of acute attacks, of inflammation. Hopefully, we'll be able to remember what canakinumab is and understand that as one of the many MABs we're having a hard time learning, especially those of us who are old dogs trying to learn new tricks. Really appreciate you helping us work through this and think critically about the difference between preventing gout and treating flares and the difference between urate deposition and acute gouty attacks. So thanks so much, Angelo, for helping us with this discussion. Well, thanks to you for this wonderful opportunity to reach out to my family in ACP. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This interesting discussion helped me a great deal in understanding the pathophysiology of both gout and gouty attacks. It was clear that Dr. Gaffo stressed that gout is a process of crystal formation, which sometimes leads to acute gouty attacks, but also leads to tophi, bone destruction, and kidney stones. In speaking of acute gouty attacks, the crystals stimulate an inflammatory process. The current study taught us about that inflammatory process, but it does not address the etiology, which is crystal formation. For your information, this is just an exploratory study. We would not use canakinumab. It costs $16,000 per dose, and you have to give four doses a year of the medication. And that does not seem to be reasonable for preventing gouty attacks, especially since you're not addressing the core etiology of gout, which is crystal formation. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and better understand gout and the inflammatory process.
For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.